Welcome to our latest episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. Our exploration of health equity and related subjects with new episodes every two weeks. The Health Disparities Podcast is brought to you by Movement is Life, and we are recording this episode live and in person at our annual caucus, where several hundred health equity advocates have convened for two days of plenary sessions and workshops. I'm Dr. Tamara Huff and a member of the Movement is Life Steering Committee. And for my day job, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and founder and CEO of Visio Orthopedics in Columbus, Georgia. It's great to be with you here today. At the caucus this year, we have an excellent panel discussion on the subject of building community partnerships for a transformative change. I'm so excited to welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast one of the two panelists from that session, from Atlanta, Georgia, Carol Redmond Naughton, JD, who is CEO of Purpose Built Communities. Welcome, Carol, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. We're delighted to have you. <laughs> Carol, could you share with us some aspects of how purpose-built communities works with local leaders to help them plan, implement, and sustain holistic neighborhood revitalization initiatives that create healthy neighborhoods that include broad, deep, and permanent pathways to prosperity for low-income families? I'm glad. And we can break it down. No, no. no. It, uh, I'm really glad to have this opportunity to speak with you about our work. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. Uh, Purpose Built Communities is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we were created about 12 years ago to help local leaders uh, learn from the lessons of the Eastlake revitalization in Atlanta, as well as what other people were doing around the country to work with local leaders to help create really strong, beautiful neighborhoods that became springboards, if you will, to help everybody who lived there meet their full potential. And so at this stage of the game, we work with about 27, 28 neighborhoods around the country, and um, we support them in a variety of ways. First, we only go where we're invited. So, you know, we don't have a list on a wall somewhere that says we want to be here or there. We go where we're invited. And so if somebody calls us from a city, um, we will tell them kind of a little bit about our view and our, our model and our values, and we'll learn a little bit more about what they're interested in trying to achieve and try to begin to ascertain whether what we know how to do is a good fit for the goals of the local community. And if it seems like there might be a there there, then we typically spend a little time getting to know one another better. And that could include my team visiting uh, that city and getting to know people in that neighborhood, people who live and work in that neighborhood and understand what their dreams and aspirations are. Um, and we want people to get to know us as well. We want people to know our values and know it's important to us and know that um, you know, we know that this is going to be both imperfect and long-term, <laughs> right? That this is really hard, complicated work. And uh, it takes a while to be able to get everything planned on the front end. So, you know, we can work with local leaders, uh, including community members, to really think together about what do they want to achieve and then work to create the roadmap to, um, to getting there. You know, our model is pretty straightforward, but straightforward doesn't necessarily mean easy to execute. We think about um, neighborhood revitalization, number one, so we're thinking about a place, a neighborhood, that, the way people who live there think about their neighborhood. Sometimes that aligns with census tracts, but hardly ever. 
it often aligns with how a city might uh, formally define a neighborhood, but it's really, you know, what are the people who live there? Well, how do they think of their neighborhood? Who are there when they think of their neighborhood? Where, what are the boundaries? Who, are the, who and what are the assets in the neighborhood? What are the strengths that the neighborhood has that they bring to the table? And then what are the challenges and obstacles that they want to overcome? And so we help folks um, kind of write all that down, right? So we, we understand where we are and then create a roadmap for implementing this model that includes high quality mixed income housing, creating a neighborhood serving cradle through college education pipeline, uh, bringing the right kinds of community health and wellness uh, programs and facilities to the neighborhood, the kinds of amenities that everyone wants in their neighborhood but are too often lacking in low-income neighborhoods. And now we think, too, about economic vitality. Um, how does money flow in a neighborhood? Who owns the businesses? Um, who has the jobs? How do we create the opportunity for people who live in that neighborhood to be owning something, whether they're owning their home, owning a business, owning stock, owning an interest in a real estate fund, some way that they're able to own something that will help them uh, generate wealth. Um, and hopefully intergenerational wealth that can change their family's trajectory long term. The secret sauce to this, though, is what we call a community quarterback organization, right? Um, I just talked about housing, education, health and wellness, and uh, economic development. You've got to have some organization that isn't in the service delivery business, but is thinking about after the residents have really created the vision for this community, how does it implement it? And so they're thinking about how do you work with different public, private, and nonprofit partners to actually do the housing and then to build that education pipeline and create those health and wellness amenities and think about and understand where how money is flowing and how people who live in that neighborhood can um, gain wealth as a result of, of planting their flag and saying, this is going to be great for me and mine. So that community quarterback is essential. And over the last 10 years, in fact, we have really come to appreciate the fact that you need a really robust community quarterback organization in order to be able to execute this work with both equity and excellence. I'm over here just smiling from ear to ear. I hope you can appreciate it in my voice because I've had the distinct pleasure to actually see one of these purpose-built communities firsthand. I had a chance to meet Jacob Peters, um, shameless plug for Columbia Park down in New Orleans. And it's absolutely phenomenal. It is. It, it really is. The is. entire... So for our listeners, I want to try to paint this picture because it's a beautiful facility, a beautiful community. It truly is a neighborhood that came together after Katrina, and they basically built, built just what the neighborhood needed in every aspect, whether it be um, developing schools, cradle, I love that, cradle through college all the way through, mm -hmm. developing um, opportunities for, um, for financial development. It's just health centers, everything that you could possibly need, workout areas, a movie theater inside of it. It, it was absolutely phenomenal. So in your panel, I love the term that you call yourself a neighborhoodist that neighborhoods are really central to all of this and central to building out that. Mm -hmm. And the concept of having a community organization that is just building that neighborhood around it, it's, 
It's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. Do you can you tell us a little bit about Columbia Park? I know you've done so many oh, ones, sure. but that one again is near and dear to my oh, heart. Oh, I love Columbia Park. I am so proud of what the Bayou District Foundation and their partners have been able to accomplish since Hurricane Katrina. Um, we first met uh, Jerry Bruce and Mike Rodriguez and Gary Solomon in November of 2005, just a few months after Hurricane Katrina. And these were three business leaders who didn't know anything really about community development at the time. Um, they all had their own businesses, their own lives in New Orleans, but we had mutual friends. And the mutual friend said, you all ought to go to Atlanta. This uh, Eastlake project could be the model for part of the rebuild of New Orleans. And they came to the community, and we spent two days together. And they, they came home committed to trying to do something that nobody had ever been able to do in New Orleans, to really create a wonderful neighborhood that supported people um, in a new and unique way. Uh, and they um, said, we, we're not experts, and we're going to figure it out. And my board, I worked for the Eastlake Foundation at the time, my board freed up 30% of my time to help them. And so we were all joined at the hip trying to figure out, well, who are the right partners? Who are the right real estate development partners? Who are the right social service partners? What do we need to do for this organization to have the opportunity to redevelop on the St. Bernard public housing site, a site um, that had eight feet of water in it for more than three weeks after Hurricane Katrina? Um, how did they? How did you get the right to be able to do that? How, how did we need to compete with others who wanted that opportunity? And so we kind of took the idea that we're going to come up with the best plan that we can, knowing that residents were scattered all over America after the storm. So there wasn't like there could be a planning committee at that point. So how could we take the best things that we could think of and create a great proposal to share with the uh, uh, housing authority of the city of New Orleans? And we thought, if they pick us, we're going to be able to execute on this plan. And if they don't pick us and they pick somebody even better than us, that's a win, too. And so uh, they chose us. And uh, when I say us, they chose the Bayou District Foundation and Columbia Residential and Kingsley House and the YMCA and now KIPP and all of these great partners who are committed to rebuilding the infrastructure of that community, great housing, great education, uh, bringing a new Educare Early Learning Center to the community. I mean, doing all this rebuilding the infrastructure so that that neighborhood became a springboard that propelled children into the stratosphere, as opposed to throwing up one obstacle after another in front of them. I get chills about it because the place is absolutely gorgeous. It is. And you mentioned during the panel, and again, just thinking about this, and I want to paint this picture for people, that this truly is a mixed-income housing. You know, this is an opportunity where if you get the new job, if you're, you continue to grow and you, you move beyond, you, want, you can stay in this community. That's you right. can stay in this beautiful place. So you have people with every different walk of life. They're thriving together, having that experience together, their kids yeah. being in, interacting together. It, it's truly it's wonderful. It it's is. a beautiful it's, model. It's one of my favorite economic models um, in the multifamily housing there. Uh, one third of the units are reserved for families who are below 30% of area median income, and they receive a subsidy from the housing authority in New Orleans. 
people under between 30 and 60 percent um, take advantage of the uh, tax credit subsidy from the low-income housing tax credit program. And then the top one-third of, of units are market rate, whatever the market will bear. And so you end up in a, being in a place where people have you know, dramatically different incomes but share lots of the same interests, lots of the same values. People live there across uh, incomes because they want to be in a place that offers great uh, schooling, right? Everybody wants their kids to be in a great school. Every mom is that I know, including me when my kids were little, were, I bought my house primarily because it was near a great early learning center, right? And so all of those kinds of things attract people across incomes to the community. And once they're there, they want to stay because they are well served. The value proposition to everybody, regardless of whether you pay a full market rate or a subsidized rent, Everybody is paying about a third of their income as rent, and they're being well served by the amenities in the neighborhood. It's a platform that will really, as I said, will uh, be a springboard that gets their kids connected with their dreams and aspirations. And I love that because, I mean, you have different incomes, but it's also intergenerational. Yeah, yeah. You have the kids there. You have the families there with different age children, but you also have a senior community mm -hmm. over there. And um, when a beautiful I, senior a community, be by the way. I aspire beautiful. to live in a senior community that looks that, that good. And by the way, I should say, you can learn more um, about um, the Bayou District and Columbia Park by going to their website. I think it's biodistrictfoundation.org. And it's a great website. You can look at the purpose-built communities. Uh, .org website to learn a little bit more about all the projects that we support and our way of work. And please, I encourage you all because you just need a glimpse of this. It's true. <laughs> and, and the ownership that the residents mm. have over their spaces, like they want a community garden, they're going to get that community garden. And it's, it's beautiful to see. And along with that, with the idea of mixed income housing, I love the concept of mixed-use areas yeah. where you're actually empowering people to do better and have the resources to do mm -hmm. better from an economic standpoint. Because you, you mentioned kind of during the presentation, during the panel, poverty is expensive. It is. A lot. When we talk about food deserts, yeah. when we talk about all these things, it is expensive not having access to the basic things you need, whether it's transportation, whether it's mm -hmm. healthy food. It is great health care, yeah. it is expensive. And if you could just talk a little bit about how you all are bringing that economic vitality to communities. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I think that's so powerful and so needed when we're thinking about these diverse programs. Well, thanks for mentioning the economic vitality work. Uh, our, our network members really encouraged us to elevate that band of work within our model. And so we've done that as part of what we call Model 2.0. And you know we're we're trying to continually learn and get better at what we do. And I love it when our network members push us to do something that they're finding works really well in their community. And that's why economic vitality is now embedded in our work. Um, yes, poverty is expensive, and you can think about it in a variety of ways. So. Um, if you don't live within walking distance of a grocery store, you may be going to the little neighborhood convenience store, the bodega, and paying somewhere between 50 and 300% more than you would pay at a suburban grocery store that's offering the same kind of product. Um, if you don't have a car and there's not good public transportation, you may have to pay for an Uber or a Lyft or a taxi, or you may have to rent somebody or pay a, somebody's car or have somebody drive you to where you're going, um, or spend two hours on a bus 
ride that's really a 15-minute car ride. So, so you're paying out of, out of your pocket or you're paying with time, which is an even more precious resource. Um, this is one that really uh, always bothers me. Um, laundry facilities. So, you know, laundry facilities. Absolutely. Um, there are, uh, at Columbia Park and in most of our uh, the projects that we support, um, laundry facilities are in every apartment. And, and you think if you're a mom with a couple of kids and you're working and you're trying to do everything that you can to support your children in school, the last thing you've got is three hours to go sit in a laundry facility somewhere in your apartment complex or a, um, a couple blocks away in a, um, in a, in a for-profit laundry facility. You know, laundry is to me, that's, that's gender equity in my mind. <laughs> Having access to a washing machine so, and a dryer so I can throw my uh, laundry in while I'm getting dinner ready or while I'm helping my kids with their homework. Um, and too many um, uh, policies, housing policies at the state level that, um, that govern how we allocate low-income housing tax credits don't allow for laundry, facility, laundry facilities to be in people's apartments. It's crazy. Somehow, it's too good for people. So let me get, let me think about that for a minute. Let me hammer in. Sometimes we have folks who manage the resources, say, you know, bringing a value judgment, right? That, so, that if you are poor, there must be some sort of moral failing on your part. And then they start, that leads them to be thinking that something would be too good for people, right? And laundry being one of them. Don't get me going on this topic. It, it's, a, it's a real um, issue for me. You're spot on because a lot of times we think of what's too good for the other and you otherize people more. One yes. of our yeah. earlier speakers during the conference actually has a, a, on another podcast, Dr. Alicia Jackson speaks of that. It's who are those others? Yeah. Who are those low incomes? Those may be your teacher. Yeah. That may be your nursing assistant. There is nothing wrong with that. There's dignity in work. There's dignity in different types of work yeah. and different types of income in different circumstances. There's human dignity in everyone. Absolutely. So, um, yes. You know, one of my mentors, Renee Glover, who used to lead the Atlanta Housing Authority, one of my dear friends and mentors and my former boss, used to say, we're building communities for children of God with unlimited human potential. Think about that. I love that. Building communities for children of God with unlimited human potential. And when you think about it that way, it changes what's too good for people. What's too good for children of God, right? Nothing. Um, ex exactly. So, so we start to think about what do people really need to become who they're supposed to be, who they could be. Um, and so uh, that really motivates me. Oh, gosh. Me as well. <laughs> <laughs> and the passion just comes through because that... It is. Is what's good enough for me, yeah. you know, is more than just good enough for me. It should be good enough for yeah. you and for everyone else. That's I mean, right. So again, early in our conference, we talked about the golden rule versus the platinum rule, treating people as they want to be treated, as they see themselves as being treated. That's the next step. It's not just good enough to oh, be like, like what you think you want, but something that it's even above and beyond that. And I just, what you're doing is that. It's interesting that you, you raise that now. Sometimes when we are invited into a neighborhood, people have been beaten down for so long that their aspirations are really small because that's all they've been allowed to dream, right? Because every time they've, they've thought about something bigger, they've been beaten back. And so part of the work on the front end is often really starting to, to develop kind of the trust 
that allows you to start thinking bigger. And, and because, you know, people in the neighborhoods where we're invited to work, um, dreaming came at a cost, right? Um, if your hope gets dashed, um, you know, it makes it harder the next time, right, to have a little bit more hope because you're now, you've got that experience, you've been hurt, and, and, and the hurt is real. So developing the trust and, develop, and then a plan and so that, that when it's time to execute, the people in the community really believe that it's going to happen. Now, honestly, I would say, even if they believe it, they don't believe it until you really do it, right? Yeah. But getting to the point where they, they might say, well, you know, they might just do it. You know, that, that's a pretty good place to get to. And then you can prove it with your actions. I love that because I love the community, the community-centric approach. Mm-hmm. It's just so powerful. And coming in and humbly, number one, you come in only when invited. That's mm. huge. And then not only that, then the first thing you're doing is listening to what people have to say about their community so they, they're being heard. And being heard is just so important. People want folks to actually listen to them and to respond to their needs. And, of course, that builds that trust in the community. Um, one of the young ladies on the panel with you is from Ward Infinity. And one of the programs that we actually have them at our caucus this year Verbal gymnastics mm. and their whole idea of playback theater is just making you a better speaker or a better listener, so you can then understand you understand, but also making that other person feel understood. So, bravo to you well, and bravo to um, purpose-built communities. You're being back. kind. Um, I will share with you. You know, when I first made the transition from kind of strict legal work and working for a fancy pants law firm and fancy pants clients. Um, you know, I didn't feel like you could walk into a room and not know the answer, right? You're, you're, they're paying you big bucks. You're supposed to, to be able to do it. And then I learned to say, well, if somebody asked me a question, I didn't know the answer. Well, that's a really good question. Let me give it some thought and get back to you. So you're building up their ego. But when I moved into community development, I brought that same attitude of I'm supposed to know all the answers. People want me to know all the answers. And it took me a minute before I realized that people didn't want me to know all the answers. They wanted me to help them on their journey of understanding what their answers were. And their answers might be a little bit different than mine or different than another community's, but their answers were their answers. And, and it, it was a real growth step for me, I think, personally, <laughs> to learn that, that it, it, I'm actually more valuable in this space when I don't know the answer than I am when I think I do know the answer. It's exactly what they say. It's like the answers are already in the room. Yeah. We just have to open our ears, yeah. our hearts, our minds to yeah. actually hear those answers. So love that. And along that line, I, I want to circle back to like one of your other um, pillars of community health. Yeah. Because so often, one of the things you said on your panel was you never really thought of yourself like five years ago, you might have not thought of yourself as being really a health yeah. organization or have any health focus, but so much of what you all are doing is key to addressing the social determinants of health and just key to building healthier communities. Can you talk a little bit about well, that? Well, I, I will tell you, um, I used to conflate access to health care with health. And it took me a minute to really understand the social determinants of health as something separate from access to health care. Now, access to health care is still critical. 
and health is what happens outside the doctor's office. So I had a mentor, a guy named Doug Judy, who um, has led the Build Healthy Places Network, who has now joined my board, um, help me understand all of this. And um, now I really have become an advocate for community development as a way to move the needle on health outcomes. And I'm not talking about simply putting a kidney dialysis center in the bottom floor of a senior high rise. That might serve the needs of the people there today. And so I don't mean to say that that's not a good thing to do, but we've got to move upstream. We've got to be way upstream and be thinking about how are we building communities and supporting children so those children 60 years from now will not need kidney dialysis. I mean, absolutely. You have a truly intergenerational focus. Oh, it's true. You know, we are... Um, one of uh, our, our former executive board chair was Shirley Franklin, the former mayor of Atlanta. And um, Shirley would you know, be really clear, right, that we were trying to solve big, hairy, audacious problems that were 400 years in the making, and we weren't going to do it in three years or five years or even 10. We could be on the track, and we could be maybe showing some process outcomes along the way, but this is really intergenerational work. And we need to acknowledge that, own it, and get everybody prepared for intergenerational work so the expectations aren't unrealistic. That, oh, yeah, three years and you're done, and you've got, you know, everybody's fine and healthy, and we've fixed racism. I love that, that looking at the greater good, looking at decades, you know, <laughs> hundreds of years, centuries ahead yeah. into the future yeah. even. So we're looking in the past, but also looking beyond tomorrow. That's right. I just, and that those communities then allow the structure to get healthier in having safe areas, having places where people can actually get out and walk and feel more comfortable to be involved. I mean, that's how you improve the health of a community long term. That's that right. is just so powerful. Place matters. Um, Neighborhood matters. Uh, we really think neighborhood is the right unit of change because it's where people experience their city. And, you know, you cities typically deliver services in silos, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got their parks and rec department, and then there you've got sewers, and then you've got police and fire and safety over here, all delivering um, and organized in silos. But people experience their community through a horizontal slice of those silos. And we call that horizontal slice a neighborhood. And so if that neighborhood isn't working for people, we would argue that the city is not working either. And so when you think about uh, cities organizing themselves around creating healthy neighborhoods, we think that's going to be better for people. And I am so proud of Atlanta's new mayor, Andre Dickens, who is doing just that really prioritizing neighborhoods and thinking about how do we get to the point where everyone in Atlanta lives in a healthy neighborhood, a neighborhood that helps them on their, on their life journey, a neighborhood that ties them to all kinds of opportunity, as opposed to being places where hope is, um, is, is seldom seen. This concept of neighborhood, I love how you come back to that every time. <laughs> now, I do have a question. In our talks at the, at the caucus this year, we've definitely talked a lot about neighborhoods, about community and the importance of connection and relationship building and things like that. It's just, they're so important. And granted, New Orleans, Atlanta, or more urban areas, do you all do any work in places that are more rural that also have, where that relationship, that trust building, yeah. that connection is so important? So our work is in cities, large and small. 
And so we work in some small cities like Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is an amazing purpose-built supported community, the Northside Development Group on the north side of Spartanburg, including Spartanburg Medical Center as a great partner, um, including the Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine as a great partner, um, really doing just amazing things. They have improved housing conditions. Um, education is so much better than it was. A new amazing early learning center serving the community that is going to support um, teacher development in early learning all over Spartanburg County. Great leadership, really exciting work. So that's what can happen in a small city with great civic leadership with people like Bill Barnett and uh, Russell Booker and, and others who have stepped up to really create um, this, this great opportunity, centering residents every step of the way. Uh, including on the board of directors of the community quarterback organization. So um, really just terrific work in that small city. I want to come back, though, something you mentioned about social contact um, and the importance of relationships. Raj Chetty, who is an economist who runs a, a group called, I think, Opportunity Insights, um, has done research. He was the guy who did that map that I showed in my presentation, the big map that shows... Um, economic mobility, the opportunity for people to move uh, up the economic food chain during uh, their lifetime. Um, his recent research was published in an uh, article in Nature a couple of months ago. And what he's determined, he said, well, yeah, this place matters in terms of people's likelihood of moving up socioeconomically. But why is it that some places outperform other places? And so he used big data and things that I'm not really um, understanding the methodology behind, but what he did is he determined that the single most important um, aspect of, of somebody moving up faster and higher than they would than their neighborhood would predict is whether they had um, friends in different socioeconomic groups. So that matters. Connection with people in different socioeconomic matters, uh, socioeconomics group matters. So it didn't matter if you were talking about um, black people and black people, white people and white people, brown people and brown people, or any kind of cross race, cross ethnicity relationship. Uh, lower income folks who had real friends with higher income families, higher income friends, were more likely to move up the economic food chain than those who did not. I mean, to me, that's really powerful. It's another reason for us to think about mixed income as a way to create mixed income housing, mixed income schools, so people really are getting to know each other and having those friendships develop. Now, I would argue that they probably don't happen organically. My experience is that you need leaders in the community who are very intentional about creating opportunities for people in different income groups to really have authentic relationships and build those relationships. Great school leaders in mixed income schools know how to do that. Managers in apartment complexes and uh, neighborhood community leaders who are tuned into this will be thinking about how do we build opportunities for uh, families and children, particularly across economic, economic strata, to build authentic relationships because those are the things that will ultimately change people's lives. So how cool is that? This all matters. It's so cool. And the, and the thing is, is, you know that in your mind, you know, you, you know that it matters. But I love the fact that you're giving us the data behind it, that's giving mm -hmm. us the support behind it, the research behind it, that, that it matters. It, it does. It really does matter. And I 
it. I am so excited about this. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to con- come back to is that community quarterback organization, yeah. the secret sauce. So we understand that communities come to you typically to say, hey, we want to do this. But how do you go about developing that group of people that are really the conduits? Because when I had the opportunity to talk with Jacob Peters down at Columbia, Columbia Park, that was the thing that he kept going back to. It's like, I help to connect stakeholders, to help make things That's happen. Right. They come up with the ideas, and I help to connect the right people. So can you talk a little bit about that yeah, central group? Yeah, so, so there's, you know, we haven't found the best way to communicate about community quarterbacks yet, but in some ways I call them both the glue and the grease in a neighborhood revitalization strategy. So sometimes they're holding partners together during difficult times, and sometimes they're putting a little, little lubrication when, when there's already too much friction, right? So they're, they're helping things work better um, in the neighborhood. So here's another example that might resonate with you. If you have ever had the experience of renovating a home, um, when you do that, you typically hire a general contractor, right? You have a vision of what you want your house to look and feel like. But you don't know what has to happen first, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You don't know whether the plumbing happens first or the drywall or the electrical Mm -hmm. work or the roofing work. You hire that general contractor whose job it is is to translate your vision into the work of all those subcontractors. So at the end of the day, you have a new home or a renovated home that is just what you dreamt of and what you wanted to have. A community quarterback is not unlike that general contractor. Not necessarily, I mean, not doing all the work himself or herself, um, but thinking about, okay, if this is the vision, how do we plan for this? Okay, if we, how do we plan for the housing to be developed? And what is our agenda and our, our timeline on education? What is our timeline on um, health and wellness? So you put all the partners together, you scaffold them up appropriately. So it, it might not make sense to open a school before the new housing has been built, for example, right? Um, You might want to build the housing before you open your school. So it's all of those kinds of things, thinking about how these things are connected or should be connected, and then thinking about how do you change the way organizations operate in order to make sure that they're working together. So let me give you an example. Um, um, Schools... Typically, you know, if you're a school leader, you're thinking about what's happening in your school. You're not thinking about necessarily what's happening in the surrounding neighborhood all the time, even though that influences what happens inside the four walls of the school. A community quarterback can be thinking about all of those things outside the school. And so, for example, if kids are late every day getting to school, most, most elementary schools, kids read um, at the beginning of the school day. So if you're an hour late for school every day, you miss reading every day. And it may, the school may not have the capacity to be able to get everybody to school on time, but with a community quarterback organization, you can get all the other partners aligned from everybody from property managers to uh, YMCAs and other, health, other providers to be doing things like walking school buses. Um, for example, to be able to make sure that everybody knows where they need to be at a certain time and walk to school together. Or you may have a mom who has to get to work early and leave school or leave for work before her kids have left for school. You can identify a neighbor to knock on the door and say, hey, come on, it's time to go. Time for us to walk to school. I mean, all of those kinds of little things that can make a real difference in whether 
um, kids and uh, families are going to thrive or just stay where they are. So, I mean, it's, it's thinking out of the box and, as I said, being that glue in the grease between all of the different partners. I Basically, they're almost like an operational manager for this whole thing. And I mean, it's like that general contractor, I love right? That. Or, yeah. Um, somebody said it's almost like a C level office in a business that has lots of lines of business, right? Absolutely. So you've got to have somebody who's thinking about it at the top level to make sure everything's coordinated and working well together. It doesn't pay to have one line of business working really well if all your other lines of business aren't working as well, right? So how do you make them all work well together? And so you're generally leading by influence. Um, you've got to be, because you're not, these people don't work for you, right? You may have an, a, you know, an agreement with them of some sort, but it's leading by influence and really helping everybody see that we're all going to do better together, right? Um, if we can work in a, in a really, uh, collaborative way. And I would say by putting data up front, so we've got agreed upon common goals that we're trying to get to that we can align around and that we can hold ourselves accountable for. And so the community quarterback is helping everybody do that. All their partners do that, um, including everybody saying, well, gosh, if, if reading is really important and we want to make sure everybody reads at grade level by third grade, I as a property manager have a role in helping to make sure kids get to school on time because I can do that, right? So property manager may not think much about that unless somebody is saying, you know what, you could really help here and here's how. I love that. It's like the concept, like you said, of the glue and the crease. Yeah. So you're holding everybody together, but also to you make things smoother. And it gives you, yes, you have the bird's eye view, but then you're also right down there in the midst <laughs> yeah. of it. So when we think about a lot of times it takes a village, yeah. I think you've just expanded the concept of what that village is yeah. and what who is a part of that village. Yeah. That is just so, so powerful. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time today. <laughs> Could you share, if you had just one call to action, because I've just enjoyed this. I have so many call to actions already. But if you have one for our listeners, in, especially in 2023, that really relates to creating purpose-built communities, what would be your call to action? Uh, my, my, so that's a great question. You know, my call to action is to look with open eyes and think about the systems that have kept people trapped in poverty, particularly black and brown people trapped in poverty, and not to blame the victims, right? To recognize that it is that, that these systems have been broken so long, they have broken the place, but the people are not broken. And if we come at it thinking about we're building communities for children of God with unlimited human potential, we can create great places and we can change the systems to make it easier to create other great places. That's the best way to end. <laughs> I, um, I absolutely, I love that. We are all building something great for children of God. That's right. And that's amazing. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Tamara. Thank, thank you so much for um, this. Thank you for sharing your insights with us on the Health Disparities Podcast today. It, it truly has been an honor and a pleasure sitting across from you today. Right back at you. This has really been a great conversation for me, too. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, anytime. And a quick reminder to our listeners, you can access videos of the plenary session, including Carol's amazing panel <laughs> discussion by visiting our website at www.movementislifecaucus.com. And if you enjoyed the episode today, please do let your friends and colleagues know about the Health Disparities Podcast, which is available on all leading podcast platforms. 
Until next time, I'm Dr. Tamara Huff saying thank you for listening to the Health Disparities Podcast. Be safe and be well.